everyone. This is Steve Marinucci, uh, writer for Billboard Magazine and Access.com, welcoming you to another Things We Said Today, where we talk about the Beatles, past, present, and maybe to come. And uh, let me first, in- we got a really special show for you today, but let me first introduce my three cohorts in crime. Uh, first, there is, uh, up in the uh, beautiful state of Maine, there is uh, Mr. Alan Cosen, uh, our musicologist. Uh, hello, Alan. Hey, Steve. I'm not admitting to participating in any crimes, but hello, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then heading south to Connecticut, um, the host of the, the Beatles show, Every Little Thing, Mr. Ken Michaels. Hello, Ken. Hi, Steve. Hi, everybody. And, and finally, down in, in glorious Pennsylvania, there is uh, our, uh, the executive editor of Beatle Fan Magazine, the very distinguished gentleman, Mr. Albert Sussman. Hello, Al. I'm looking for a distinguished gentleman. Uh, oh, oh, me. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hi, Steve. Hello there, everybody. We are doing a very special show today that we've already taped, and I'm, this is just an introduction. Uh, so what you'll hear now is the conversation we had with Nigel Sinclair, the producer of the Beatles' Eight Days a Week, the Touring Years film, and also Paul Crowder, the film's editor. And what you're going to hear is a lot of inside stuff about the making of the film, some details that some of uh, that we had not heard and that we think you'll be really interested in hearing. You guys want to make any comments before we before we introduce this? Before we go into this? No, I'd say roll the tape. Oh, okay. <laughs> well then, let's let's just roll the tape. Hello, Paul. Hey, how how are you? How do you do? Nigel should be with us shortly, I'm sure. Okay. okay, and and so you were the you were the editor. I mean, um, how what kind of just give me give me a a, a brief run through of how or how this thing was put together. If if you can do it, um, I, I know that's a big question, but well, okay, uh, I'll let Nigel sort of like really sort of give the full explanation. Um, but uh, Nigel <coughs> hired myself and Mark Monroe, um, uh, as well as um, you know putting Imagine in touch with Apple as far as him directing so it all came really apple Steve, apple nigel. Oh, here he is he can okay. uh, he can actually explain this a lot better than i can hello nigel there's uh, f- uh four of us here there's uh, myself uh steve marinucci who you talked to the other day there's ken michaels who you also talked to there's uh alan cosen and there's al sussman and paul is also on here so this is a crowded a crowded line i was just asking paul about the about what the editing job to put the to put the film together i mean he actually was kind of kind of relaying it to you but go ahead between the two of you and and so so you, what was the question how the, how the, the film ed- was put together so i, I wasn't sure if you it made the creative set or more of sort of like getting the team together as it were so i, I thought it would be best if you sort of like tell them how we got the team together and then i can sort of in, inform them about how we sort of got the edit process together great well what happened was um, originally, Apple had first been talking to another company called One Voice, One World. Loosely, we call them OVOW. And they did a really, uh, had a really clever idea, which they noticed, because they're all archivists, that they were seeing a lot of home, ent- home video, home, home movie camera footage in the early 60s and other projects, because they were becoming um, a popular item for consumers to buy. They were becoming priced at a point in the early 60s, home movie cameras that people could afford them. 
and they thought, well, I bet you people took them to the Beatles concert. So they checked that out and, and discovered that there was a lot of home movie footage, and they went to Apple, and Apple got interested and excited about thinking there was a chance to find some new Beatles footage that hadn't been available. And they did quite a lot of research and built up a certain amount of archive. That didn't really result in enough material to make a film, but what they got was great, and, and we and they're part of our credit package on the film, and we're grateful to them. Then in 2012, Jeff Jones approached me, because I was producing Olivia Harrison's documentary about George Harrison, full living in the material world, and asked mm-hmm. me if I could consider coming on board and producing a film about the Beatles' touring years, which, um, of course, I excitedly agreed to do. I then um, approached um, Ron Howard, whom I knew because I was making a film with him called Rush at the time, and asked him if he'd be interested in doing a documentary, which he said he would. He hadn't done one before at that point, although he subsequently did Made in America with Jay-Z. And, um, and then I, of course, have worked with Paul Crowder on the phone with us today, my very good friend and artistic colleague, and Mark Monroe, who is a wonderful writer and works with Paul a lot and often works with me and Paul. And we built a team together, together with uh, Scott Viscucci, who also was an invaluable part of the team, did a lot of the structuring deals and arrangements with the music, which are very complicated in the Beatles catalogue. And, and that was the team that came together, and we started work for Sirius at the end of 2013. And in February 2014, we sent out a press release announcing the project and asking members of the public to send in any footage, photos, clips, or memories they had of the Beatles. And because... By then, social media was in um, full swing. We got a lot more stuff than originally back in 2002 they were able to get just because, you know, the, 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 the digital integration, of, you know, global information really reached a peak as we now live in that every day. So we really benefited from that, although we at the time didn't really think that through. Looking back, it's a really good time to do this. And we've got a whole lot of clips, which Paul will tell you about, that are actually in the film that are never before seen fan clips of Beatles performances. So over to you, Paul. Uh, well, we started accumulating the footage uh, in the edit bay around two, about J- June of uh, 2014 and just started you know, logging and looking through everything that, that, that they had. Obviously, the thing to consider is that during their hype, the period, uh, um, you know, their most famous period, the Beatles, they were followed every day. They were on the newspaper front pages every day for about four years. Some, one of the papers in England had them on the front page. There were constantly some media about them you know, being taken. So when you start tracking some of this stuff down and you start realizing how much you've got, you know, there's an awful lot to go through. And the anthology has a lot of that footage in. And the, you know, the main key that we wanted to do was to use footage that hadn't been seen and try and uh, give the audience a fresher view of a what is, you know, for some maybe a familiar story. So that was really the key was to find the rarer footage. And we had a great research team, a guy called Eric Taros, who was a fantastic researcher. My assistant, Jamie Bolton, was incredible at uh, helping going through all the media. So we started just pulling the media. And some of the stuff that was in the film are, as Nigel said, um, Super 8 footage from the crowds that have never been seen before. The Sweden footage, that I don't think that's ever been, I'm pretty sure that's never been seen before. We may have been, you know, that was the first time in public for certain. Um, it may have been seen by, you know, by a handful of collectors in the past. Um, there was some footage out of the crowd in Melbourne that's never been seen before as the Milan footage. Only a few frames have ever existed and it's 
more of a secret. Does, is that real? You know, people are like, does that really exist or not? And now it does, obviously. So there's various things like that. And also um, some great photographers gave us their entire collection of photographs rather than just the ones that had been chosen for um, publicity in the past. We, got, we were able to go back to the proof sheets and be able to put, pick from uh, all sorts of areas. So we really did have a vast... Uh, catalogue of material to go through, which made the film, you know, a fun and exciting to work on, but um, also be able to give it to the audience in many ways, in uh, as I say, in a fresh in a fresh format visually. Uh, Alan, why don't you ask the next question? Um, I was wondering, actually, who specifically you envisioned the audience as being. Well, that's a that was. Um I mean, the, the obvious answer is sort of everybody who might watch it. We tried to do two things, strike a balance between recognizing that the enormous following of Beatles fans would, this is the first Beatles feature documentary since 1970, and the first proper Beatles authorized original project of any kind since 1994, as I'm sure you know, Alan. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, although there have been various programs and TV shows which Apple's cooperated with, they haven't offered anything for, uh, amazingly, 22 years. So we, we, we knew there was an appetite for material that it had to have a freshness to it. And then we also wanted very much to reach out to the millennial generation, which is why Apple, as you, I'm sure you know, chose to, to go in st streaming finally, because they realized that that's where that... Uh, that, that audience gets their music. So we sat down with, with Ron, Ron sharing us, our, our wonderful director, Ron Howard. We're discussing both what the story arc was about this period, which is a period that is not so well known. You know, for many people, the Beatles were either this storied band that came up through Liverpool and Hamburg, and then they toured the world, and then they were in the studios, and eventually they had a sort of period when they were cultural reference points going to India and so on, and then they had a sort of rather unhappy breakup. And so that's most people we found don't really know what years the Beatles actually appeared. And when initially we called the film 62 to 66, people thought that was the period that the Beatles actually existed. And why didn't we deal with the White Album? So we realized that we had to call it the touring years. So the second audience we really wanted were the millennials. And we decided that, you know, millennials famously are more interested in the why and the how of things than the what. They don't really want to know that all the achievements of the Beatles, uh, you know, pulled off. I want to know how on earth did they do that? And that was what interested Ron. How on earth did these guys not go insane with this pressure? And the pressure is pretty clear when you watch this film or you watch actually anything on Beatlemania. It's quite clear that however much pressure young music stars are in today pales compared to what these guys put up with because they didn't have an entourage, you know, all that. They didn't have, they weren't protected. They didn't, they didn't even know to, to not have their space invaded. So we tried very hard to answer the why question. Why did it work? Which is what led us to talking about the collective, you know, the collective relationship between them, the, the way they made decisions, the way they were very much focused on each other and not the, not the press or the audience as to what worked. And although they obviously, like all artists, trying to please their audience, if you watch them together, when they're cracking jokes, they're looking at each other. They're not looking at you to see if you think it's funny. Mm -hmm. um, so we try to reveal that with things like Richard Curtis's comments. 
Okay, but so so they they were really essentially a musical band, um, which I guess is the what part that the millennials yeah. are less interested in. I've heard that you had originally and in an earlier cut um, much longer music sequences, you know, whole songs, mm-hmm. things like that, going through, and that when it was market tested, it, you were told that they had to go. Is that the case? Well, it's no, it's not actually. The market okay. testing had nothing to do with it. We didn't, we didn't market test it. We did one market test towards the end. Actually, the fil- the, the version we tested is very close to the film that you now see in the theaters, right, Paul? The Pasadena version. Yes, yes, that's correct. Yes. So no, what what happened? What happened in these documentaries? And Paul and I have done quite a few of them now. Is there's a conflict in the audience experience between watching live sport or live music which is one part of your brain and attitude, and another is following a narrative. And it's very hard to go from a narrative and keep up an emotional arc and attention and then go into a song. Um, hmm. And, you know... Kind of kind of worked in Hard Day's Night, really. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah but the narrative was much thinner than ours. We, we had a much stronger story that we were having to mm-hmm. get through. And okay. when you broke, you know, we were, it was really important that we connected, that the thoughts and the emotions stayed strong and close together. Hmm. We found, you know, we found there was a, there's a definite, um, you know, we de- there was there were beats that we discovered that we needed to hit certain moments by certain times for each thing to to stay rising in its um, in its emotion and where we were moving to. When we laboured, we found by when we laboured on the third song and the fourth song that the the film was starting to it was starting to uh, I can't think of the right word, but it was just getting it was getting too much. You know, it was starting to it was it was getting to you that it was becoming tiresome at times, and hmm. you didn't want that situation because the screaming becomes consistent and it's in every song, so it becomes very hard, even you know, as best as best as we could. So we, it really became quite obvious that we needed to start trimming the performances down, um, and that also lent to the footage that we had, for instance, in uh, Australia. We only have a limited selection of uh, footage of that particular song from the audience. The uh, TV broadcast version has been seen many times because it's one of the uh, most preserved versions of that concert. But the, uh, from the audience, it had never been seen before. And by trimming down the song, we were able to use all the footage that existed of that song. Because if you think about it back then, people had a lot of their Super 8 cameras did not have sound. So they would just, you know, they would... Uh, just film sections. Let me get the shot of Paul. Let me get a shot of John. Let me get mm-hmm. a shot of Ringo. And they just do it in spurts. And they would very, very rarely give you a continuous song. So mm-hmm. that was just, um, you know, because you only had seven minutes in the can, most probably, maybe two cans, you know, 14. So again, mm-hmm. you know, it was all limited. So it all worked to our favor in that respect. Anyway, cutting the songs down meant we could really show the song just from these lo- lovely snippets of uh, Super 8 that now exist. And the song still feels somewhat complete. You don't feel like you're missing out. We still feel like we're getting enough of it to, uh, to whet our appetite and keep us moving forward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just to be clear, that we didn't cut anything because of a screen test. What you do in these screen tests of a documentary, which is different from a movie, is you get a general sense of whether whether we wanted to find out. Our, our thesis was the Beatles rose up. They became this extraordinary phenomenon by 1965. The formula that they that took them into '64 was the formula that the management was still following, except in the studio and in the creativity. And that by 1966, Elizabeth's coming off the kettle, 
and they, they had to retire from the road or they'd have broken up. But that for us as the audience 50 years later, this was really the butterfly leaving the chrysalis. Uh, you know, the, the, break, the breaking open of not being constrained by being on the road in circumstances which, if you've seen the film, you know, just insupportable on any rational basis. And that this was a joy, not a sorrow. And that we were trying to build that case because you always, when you're doing a story like this, you're looking for truths. And it, what we said is true, just as, you know, in our Bob Dylan film, we said Bob Dylan left touring because um, he couldn't take it anymore. You know, but the, there's always there's always another truth. Bob Dylan left touring because Blonde on Blonde sold a million copies and he made a million dollars, you know, and he could afford to not tour anymore. But with the Beatles, they actually stopped touring because they had to. And actually, they were taking a risk because, as you know, their record deal was so bad that they then started to get into financial difficulties because, um, you, you know, they no longer had this massive touring income, which was um, apparently in modern days, they were making millions in modern days money in 66 from that tour. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. And the other question which Paul's talking about with the music is that over the years doing these music docs, getting the right amount of live performance music without breaking up the emotional through line is a very fine and difficult thing. I mean, Paul Crowder is probably the best person the business doing. And, you know, if you're a purist, as I suspect you guys are and I am, you think, goodness me, how, how bad can it be? You've got a beautiful Beatles song, and it is beautiful, and it's lovely. But then the audience is going into a different headspace, and now you're asking to come back and pick up where you were three minutes ago, and they get lost. And that, that's, that's something we've learned. We've learned it on the Who film, actually, originally, Amazing Journey. And we, Scorsese struggled with that in No Direction Home. And we eventually agreed that we'd have a version of chorus in every song, which sort of worked. You know, he had more songs, but less of it. And what we tried to do was, was to have, we had, you know, four or five complete songs, and then the rest we just um, broke into the songs, you know, with narrative. Sorry, that was rather long-winded, but go with your next <laughs> No, it was, it was illuminating, I have to say. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to hear that it wasn't driven by the marketing tests because to me that would be the end of Western Civ, having marketing <laughs> sort of determine what creative is doing, you know. No, but, no. You, don't, you can't possibly make uh, documentaries. The only p- person you listen to when you make documentaries is the film itself. The film mm-hmm. tells you what it wants, what it needs constantly. And if you're and, and, paying attention to that, 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 you always end up with the right, making the right choices. The other person you listen to is your producer. Of course, well, of course, of course, you listen to the producer, but after the producer, you, then you listen to the film. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so Al? listen to the producer, always. Mm. <laughs> Since you're both English, one of the criticisms yeah. of, the, of the film has been that it's extremely U.S. centric. Uh, in fact, some of those criticisms have come from folks in England who feel that, you know, too much of the film is is centered in the U.S., especially the early part of the film where it seems as if there's almost like a rush to get to the, the, American, the first American visit. How would you, how would you answer that? Um, there's a John Lennon quip. John Lennon would have a witty answer for that, wouldn't he? But I probably don't know you well enough to make it. Um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot of that, and then you can correct me. We tried very hard to represent the European touring. But the problem with the European touring is it's from country to country, and the journalists on the tours would change. So if they were did 16 gates around Europe, you wouldn't have a Larry Kane with them going everywhere. And you didn't have this 
because the United States is such an enormous country, they ended up, particularly in 64, with not only Larry Kane, but also Ivor Davis and various other journalists that we interviewed, a lot of them, that went with them on, on the tours. And there was a continuity and a perspective which allowed us to have a story and a sense of explosion. In Europe, because their journey up was more incremental, and because when they would go to Sweden, there'd be one set of journalists covering them, and then they'd go to Frankfurt and somewhere else, you never quite got the capacity to develop this story. Plus, the explosion in America was at an exponential level, and it took them to the rest of the world, as, as you know. So it right. was partly because it was rich with characters and stories that allowed us to reveal it, whereas going around Europe was much more ad hoc. That was the reality. And then the other thing is, like the British tours, which I wish we'd had more of that, just is not that much footage. Um, I actually went to a show in Glasgow in 64, and that interview with the lady, a Scottish lady on Scottish television, actually was, took place two or three hours before I saw them performing as a young man in, in a theater there. But there's no footage other than that TV show with that interview. Paul, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, that is what those, one of the biggest problems uh, is how much uh, filming they, that uh, Brian Epstein allowed of the band, not only in England but in, and in America. You know, we used the help performances from Blackpool during the 65 tour, which is, again, before we get to America. But a lot of our story points would just happen because of, for instance, the Larry Kane is, is a great case in point. You know, he, he has uh, not only a fabulous story to tell, but all his um, media that he had of his uh, interviews that he took was wonderful uh, uh, media for us to use in the film. It was great stories and great intimate insights into where they are, you know, and where the band was. I mean, his, his just epiphany during, you know, 13 dates into the tour that he was witnessing something special, unique, probably never to be seen again already just 13 dates in. You know, that, that drew us to him and his story. So, therefore, that whole American tour becomes a, you know, a big, strong story point. Then you have the racial divide and them not wanting to play to segregated audience, which just wasn't a big issue in England because it just wasn't happening. So these, again, are strong story points that we want to uh, work on. So it was really more where the story was leading us, which is why we lent on it. And, of course, 66 with the Jesus, uh, you know, we're bigger than Jesus scandal, Again, it's just natural story points for the, where, the, where the story happened to be stronger. Um, and it just happened to be that they were in America for those, uh, those places. So it wasn't a, a, an effort to sort of like stay in America. It just happened to be where the film took us more often. And we had a much longer Australian section. We had a much longer European beat. But then, again, we were, you know, by watching it, we were discovering we were repeating ourselves. There was a lot of stuff that was sound, feeling familiar. So let's try and bring these sections down and so the European tour got condensed a lot and we removed we condensed Australia a bunch as well so you know we ended up longer in America just because again the, the story points at those moments were much much more powerful although it did seem that the their rise to to stardom in England went by very in 63 went by very quickly you know, for instance, I mean, there is uh, there is audio of the uh, the uh, Sunday Night at the Royal Palladium, and there is, of course, the footage from uh, uh, the Royal Command performance, and that's uh, unless I missed something. Uh, yeah. Neither neither one is in the film. No, we did have them in earlier versions of the film. Those moments did uh, occur, and we did we did have them in a longer in longer screenings. The Manchester footage was so strong, and and with Pathé giving us 
access to the film and being able to then do a re-transfer of the film and clean it up and having Giles Martin in our corner being able to clean up the audio and enhance the audio as best we can. That was such a strong place to be in England and wanting, and the pace that we wanted to move forward in the film was we really needed to get to America next and we didn't have time to then do two other performances you know, in other places. Again, though, you know, the, London perform- the uh, Royal Variety performance and the London Palladium um, are pretty well covered uh, in, their, in their history and have been seen a lot. Um, so again, we, you know, wanting to not repeat ourselves or make the film feel too familiar from other stuff was another reason why mm-hmm. we made those decisions to cut those performances and keep the Manchester one. But also, I think the point behind the point here is that this was a poem. This was not prose. The anthology was prose. It laid out the history in detail. We didn't see it as our job to record all these right. events from an historical standpoint, which is the question that lies behind your question. What we were trying to do was to build a case, to build a thesis that the Beatles emerged and were presented to the world by their extraordinary touring achievement. And their music was great, but of course it became much greater. But eventually, the, the, in the very process that built them up had to come to an end for them to become, you know, the fulfillment of their artistic journey. And we weren't looking so much as to record that they went to different places and ticked the box. Now, Anthology does that. We were trying to find a way to emotionally give you the sense of the ride. And it seems like, based on the reaction, that that, that sort of works. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you feel the same way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Ken? I do. Um, first of all, I just want to say that the more I watch this film, the more I appreciate it. I really love the way that it's just so well edited. I mean, <laughs> you're glued to the screen for an hour and a half, and it keeps you captivated. So for that, I applaud both of you on this. And I do want to say, um, I want to ask this question because um, I had the chance to, to not only uh, see another screening of it, but there was a Q&A with Jeff Jones after the screening. And he did say that a year before this, this film was released, it was a different movie. And he described it as being much more academic with uh, more interviews. What was it that made you decide to even make it, you know, this very... Well, I guess you're kind of answering this question in a way, but what happened with all these interviews? Are they pretty much what will make up the bulk of all the bonus elements that will be in the DVD and Blu-ray? And was it difficult to really edit everything down and decide which of these interviews was the strongest that told the story? Again, Paul, I'll jump in, then you correct me, and then, guys, I'm going to have to jump in a minute. I'm late for a meeting, but um, but Paul can definitely stay on. You know, Jeff is describing a process. When you're building a documentary because you're not shooting a movie to a script. You're looking for a story, and you're looking for rhythms, and you're looking for underlying truths. And truths aren't necessarily prosaic or specific. They're, you know, they're, they're the essence of something, and you're looking for the essence of this day Beatles journey. We, hmm. we start, the stuff that Jeff is talking about was laid over. Almost all of the footage that you see now was included in that film a year ago, nearly all of it. It's just that it was too much, and it was, and it was cloying the story. And we... We built the piece, you know, if you're not, we, we shared a lot with Apple because they wanted it that way. Normally, we wouldn't show the client the movie until it was pretty close to being, you know, ready. So they, they witnessed the open heart surgery, if you will, and Jeff was great and loved, I think, loved the process. So that version of the film contains some very good ideas which are represented in the movie, but not represented in that way. For example, 
John Savage, whom you remember from the film, talks in considerable detail about Brian Epstein's role in, in guiding the Beatles and saying that they were going to be bigger than Elvis. A great interview, a great clip. I loved it. But Mark Monroe, our writer, who is also a very clever man, um, and Paul's friend, I mentioned at the beginning of the call, pointed out that if we could find a way to get the Beatles to tell us about what Brian did, that's much more powerful. And Paul, in an interview, when prodded with a question, he came and uh, he, he said Brian had a vision for us that was greater than the vision we had for ourselves. And I remember thinking, bingo, when he said that. He said it. That's what, that's what we need. And we, got, we came back on the question and built around it. So they had Brian telling us. I'm sorry, Paul telling us about Brian. That's an example. And um, the second half of your question is there is almost an hour and three quarters of extras coming out of the DVD package, which contain, um, for example, the alternate o opening, the opening that started with Malcolm Gladwell, which mm -hmm. is very bookish, very intellectual, very BBC4, and a lot of fun. But it wouldn't have, wouldn't have had, I mean, we have people dancing in the aisles in the, in Santa, in Santa, in the Monica Lemley in Santa Monica. Like last night, somebody sent me an email. And um, I don't think they'd be dancing in the aisles to the other version of this film, although intellectuals, were, intellectuals would love it. And we do service a lot of that material and a lot of those interviews in the extras. We have, we have you know, what do we have for? We've got Australia. There's more on Australia. We've got um, a whole Liverpool sequence, which is really wonderful. Nine-minute nine Liverpool thing. We have a, a three fans we found. Two went to the Sullivan Show and one went to the, the, the Washington show, and they're all very articulate about why they as girls went to that show, what it meant to the time, and we managed to make that you know, very compelling to watch, um, although it doesn't sound compelling, it is. So that, all of that work ended up in a good place, but what yeah. you're looking in the film is to find what is, what is the poem that will make the documentary, you know, that will, 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 will take you, the viewer, through and give you a sense of these people without giving you a history lesson that you feel you're doing your homework. Right. Oh, and that's okay. the beauty of having these bonus elements on the DVD. It gives you room to put all that material on there. Yeah. That well, might have slowed the, the film down. It, it did slow the film down. And that's, there are things we left in there that, you know, people might say slowed the film down because we felt they were so important. Paul, do you want to add to that, old boy? Um, yeah, well, I just, you know, as I say, that you pretty much covered it all, but it, it, the... Like the the Howard Goodall uh, interview, when we did the interview at the time, and the majority of the stuff he was talking about was breaking down the songs, how beautiful, how uh, brilliant the songwriting is, you know, in a musical way, talking about the history of the song, the history of the chordal changes, their influences as kids and the music they would have grown up on and how it influenced the way they played the songs they played when they were younger, etc., this was all fascinating. We all finished the interview with our mail on the floor, just like, that was incredible. And you build a sequence of him breaking down one of the songs, and it's fantastic stuff about what, and it, on its own, sitting on its own, it plays wonderfully, and you just think, oh, this is brilliant. And then you put it in the film, and it's just not the voice of the film anymore. The film has stopped being emotional, and now become instructional. And it, it just doesn't sit in there, and it's really... Disappointing, you know, it was like a really tough thing for us to do. But when we had that realization, that a section like that just doesn't sit in the emotion that we're creating. So you have mm -hmm. to take them out. Um, but we always knew, you know, some of these sections would be able to be saved for the the extras, and um, so that gives us a nice strong extras package. No, I mean Howard Goodall's stuff is so fascinating. It ended up we have a, we have an extra called Words of Music. 
um, and it's so interesting. And I was saying, you'd taken that here, there, and everywhere sequence of that over my dead body. You know, that's what happened. Right. And then, then they say, okay, we'll leave it in there. And when we sit with Ron Howard and watch it, we realize that although it's really interesting, it's like the movie's taken a step to the right. It's gone off sideways. And, and um, you just, as you make these documentaries, you have to be prepared to let go of things you totally love. And it's very hard. I mean, Paul spent a year cutting stuff. But, you know, in the end, the, the job of the producer and also the director is to, is to make sure that, as I say, the story pays off for the viewer. Well, they won't watch it. Mm-hmm. Yep. I was told you guys made an alternate Japanese opening for the, or uh, a Japanese segment for the film. Is that going to be part of the extras, too? Yep. Okay. That is part of the extras, yeah. Well, there was an extra, we, I think there's an extra four or five minutes in the Japanese uh, version of the film where we spend a little longer in Japan and do a little more uh, yeah. of the J- Japanese backstory. Uh, and, and that is in the DVD extras, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I was knocked uh-huh. off for about 10 minutes. And, and so if, if you've already answered this, um, you know, feel free to say so. But uh, since you were talking about the extras, um, there, uh, the description says that there are sort of five performances or performances of five songs, um, but it doesn't give any sources or, or what they are. They're not from a single appearance, I gather. Is that true? No. I'm not sure what we ended up, what we uh, agreed on in the end, which ones stayed and which ones went. Do you, are you familiar? I can do that. We, we included um, Kristen Shout, and we, we, we wanted to have a place on the exit where you could play five people's songs straight through, um, if people want to as an option. So you could play Tristan Shout and, and, and She Loves You, that was Paul recut from the Manchester footage, which is... Um, really a staggeringly classic performance, as you know. We've got help from the Blackpool performance all the way through. We've got Can't Buy Me Love, and um, my brain has felt that we've got one more. What is it, Paul? It's the whole of Can't Buy Me. Was it um, You Can't Do That from Australia? Was that the other one? Yes, You Can't Do That. Yeah. Yeah. See, what the the Beatles, they were also filmed a lot less in the later tours, apart from Shay, which, of course... um, is a theatrical extra, as you probably know, guys. Someone has said on the internet, so it must be true, um, perhaps you could clarify, that, um, <laughs> that in um, sprucing up the Manchester footage, that Giles Martin actually replaced the two performances with Hollywood Bowl ones. Is that true? We, we don't know anything about that. Ah, okay. No, that's not no, that's not my understanding. Um, I think there might have been some sort of cross information with uh, with with the process. Uh, there are times where um, I think that you know the bass was lacking, and so um, there's uh, on the three track recording of the Hollywood Bowl, the bass is set, uh, on one of the tracks is a separate track, so he was able to uh, bring the bass in um, mm-hmm. from that yeah. to help uh, mm-hmm. help just give us some bottom end in that particular version but what they are able to do is this incredible technology that they've uh, created over there and they are able to take mono performances and literally separate all the instruments out i have no idea how but it's a really incredible process and therefore reduce the screaming get the bass drum up get it you know you have to have some there has to be something there to play with but if it's there you know they can separate it all out it's really quite incredible so there was an enhancing here and there where you might have added a bit of bass now and then, but uh, there was no performance replacement. 
Okay. Could you guys uh, explain not, how you, how you went through the process of picking uh, the people who you interviewed, the celebrities and the scholars? I mean, there, there's such a, you know, I, I'm sure there's plenty of people that volunteered who would want to have been in this film. And I love the choice of, of what you picked, especially Elvis Costello, someone like him who could speak so well about the Beatles and has that relationship working with Paul. How did you go about picking these people? Well, we interviewed actually 70 people. <laughs> no. um, and many of them appear in the extras, actually. I mean, for example, we interviewed nearly all of the older Liverpool people, some of whom have actually passed on since we interviewed them. And we, did, we approached the interviews partly with a view to what we wanted to film and partly because Apple wanted to archive these people while they were still with us. Um, and uh, Jonathan Clyde, in particular, in the UK, was driving force in, in getting that done. But, you know, there's all sorts of people saying, oh, you should have superstars in there and so forth. But the conclusion that we came to was we didn't really want people in this film who didn't either have a direct connection with the story or who we could establish a connection. And Elvis, you know, his parents were from Liverpool, things like that. And he knew the culture. I mean, there is, there is, one, there is one witness who doesn't really, has a very sort of attenuated connection with it, and that's um, Eddie Izzard. But, but he served a purpose. So the people that ended up in the film were people who moved the storyline along. And in each case, we could tell you, many of these people were in the film much more at different points, but we, what you try to do at the end of the documentary is to lean it down to what you absolutely have to have to move the story along, and not that you want to have because you're being indulgent. So, you know, Whoopi Goldberg is clearly an incredibly important person because she says something about why the Beatles worked. I, my, my brother was 66, and I was in Scotland actually three days ago at the dinner table, and he's not a rock and roller at all. And he's being asked by somebody, what, we went to a Beatles concert together, what, why the Beatles so important? And he said, because they gave me this sense of belonging as a young person growing up in Scotland where we were in the country. I felt I was hooked into something that was mine. And you know, that's a white guy from Scotland. That's pretty much exactly what Whoopi said, right? Mm. Yeah. I mean, almost, it, was almost, it was almost eerie because he hadn't seen the film at that point when he said this. And so we, we wanted that point to come out, what the Beatles meant to people. Obviously, finding Kitty Oliver, which was a, a bit of a coup, mm. um, gave, gave, and she was such a wonderful witness. That was, we were ecstatic when we found that. So we, we were looking for magic gold. I mean, you know, Paul found this amazing Sigourney photograph. So there's a, you, you know, it, it, I mean, what she says is important. And the fact that she was at the Hollywood Bowl gives it a kind of tingle, you know. Um, finding Ed Freeman, the roadie in Santa Monica, I mean, this is a guy who's actually there at Ground Zero in 1966. And I'm sitting with him, and I am a rock and roller. I'm thinking, this is the most amazing person. He's completely healthy. He's got great memory. You know, he, he's sensible. He's not living off his memories about this and being boastful. He just was the guy next to them for 23 days on that tour and he can remember it like it was yesterday. And he hasn't written a book, and he's not trying to, you know, be a star. He just was saying, well, what was it like? And he just told us what it was like in a very, you know, self-effacing way. And I thought, wow, that's like if you could interview Buzz Aldrin if he wasn't, you know, such an eccentric person, asking what it was like to walk on the moon with Neil Armstrong. This is this was the last tour the Beatles were on, and you know, one of the biggest entertainment phenomenon in human history. And um, so, the, so we, we, we found people that gave us the response that I'm now giving you, explaining it to you. And usually, 
that is where we ended up with. Okay. Al? Uh, actually, following up on something that Alan had asked, the Shea Stadium footage that's been shown in the, uh, the theatrical showings of the, of the film, uh, you know, the plan is that that's not going to be in the package. But it, it would seem that the, you know, work that uh, Giles Martin obviously did on the, uh, on the musical performances, one would think that there is probably a plan to do, to do something with that film. Any clues on what that, that might be? Well, it won't be in the near term because this was, a, this, this was only cleared for theatrical, um, mm-hmm. musically. Um, it was a gift from the Beatles to the production. They didn't charge us for it. They haven't charged any extra fee to the public for it. Apple and, and, I, and the people, you know, their, their partners, their shareholders, wanted to give the public the feeling of what it was like to actually be there on the front row of a Beatles concert. Because, you know, even if you went to a concert, as I did, and maybe you guys did, I don't know, you, you know, you couldn't hear anything. Um, I mean, I saw them in a pretty small movie theater, and it was like standing behind a 747 at, you know, Heathrow Airport. So that's, I mean, we're not, we're not aware of any plans to release it, and it certainly won't be in the near future. Okay. Um, when I was off, did anyone ask anything about colorization? No. No. Okay, could you um, maybe walk us through what some of the discussions about that were? There must have been pros and cons voiced, and how was it finally decided to do some and just some, not all the black and white, obviously. The, uh, which stuff do you think was colorized? Okay, Washington Coliseum was <laughs> colorized. Uh, the uh, help okay, from uh, Blackpool Night Out was colorized. Um, the 1964 NME concert was colorized. The JFK, Kennedy JFK, Airport JFK was right. That's impressive. That, that's impressive. You know, most people, amazingly, most people don't realize it's colorized. Huh. I mean, Beatles fans, I mean, hardcore people, which you guys are, know that because you've seen it before. But uh, we, we, I mean, for example, with Can't Buy Me Love, people think that's just old, old degraded color footage that's faded. Interesting. Hmm. We had a rule which Ron Howard came up with, which was if there could have been a color camera there, if there could have been, um, then we can colorize it if it's a good job. And we did colorize some other stuff. We colorized the, the MBE sequence of Buckingham Palace because I thought that building would be much more fun to look at. And, and we were trying to color. We colorized sometimes you can see the Beatles wriggling through a crowd in a scene of out of a car. was Paul's crushed up against the wall and you don't see it in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that the color would bring it out and make it 3D and it does. And you can see the Beatles sort of sliding around the crowd, and, you know, making a point. So we, we, we followed that rule. If there could have been a color camera there, there was. Now you may say, well, you broke that rule at Washington, and you're absolutely right. That's the only time we broke it, because there wasn't color cameras widely in use at that point. Well, did. but there, there actually there, there was in the anthology a bit of, ha- a bit of handheld color um, mm. footage. Mm. Yeah, well, super eight, but not television. Okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'm being hard on myself, because everyone said that. But we, you know, obviously the Washington concert has been seen on because uh, uh, it's available on iTunes in black and white. Um, mm-hmm. And when we were testing for color, Mark Ambrose, our wonderful supervising producer, actually used a piece of Washington just by coincidence for the vendor to test. 
tested on different places to see what it looked like. And it came back, and we could see Mal Evans and crew around the stage, and we could see the symbols tanked up and various things in detail that you can't see. And we thought, wow, that is really fascinating. It's a whole new world. So we actually decided to, to colorize that song, um, uh, you know, all, all the way through. Um, we didn't colorize the cabin because we thought people would think that would be blasphemy. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't Sullivan because it's such a famous performance that people people think that Sullivan was actually black and white. It's like people who watch First World War movies, <laughs> they think yeah, it really was black and white. Now it's been colorized to say, well, it's not really the same. <laughs> you know, because it's, you know I, I wanted to colorize Sullivan, but I was voted down. Um, um, because if you look at the photographs, they built this lavish stage set with those arrows and everything, which are completely mm-hmm. wasted in black and white because you can't see them. Mm-hmm. And which you have on the cover of the American Something New album, so you could get the exact colors if you wanted mm. uh, from from the yeah. color photos. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, it was when we had reference that was always the uh, that was always important that we had a reference to pull the colors from. Mm-hmm. Okay. The, the, um, Paul, Paul, I think you, you you might be fun for you to talk about one of the things you're so brilliant at is when you found those pieces of studio chatter and mm. the the process and you animate. I've got a jump, guys. I'm half an hour late to somebody, but this is really fun. And I thank you for your interest in the film. And um, Paul, if you don't mind, I've got to go and do this. But what um, is amazing is that you've been making it eight days a week. You make it feel like we're actually seeing moving footage because of the way you so clever at playing tricks with the pictures. Maybe, maybe you want to talk about that. If the others would like to hear it. Well, thank you, Nigel. Nigel. Okay. Thank, yeah, you, thank you, Nigel. you, Nigel, for being here. Yeah, I mean, you know, what was one of the other things that was really uh, we were lucky to have was that uh, Universal Group and Apple allowed us access to the um, all the outtakes of the studio stuff, all the stuff in between all mm-hmm. the, the songs. They have transcripts, and so we were able to go through the transcripts and then pull the sections that we wanted to listen to, and they'd send us the audio. And we were able to recreate the moments in the studio when they were learning songs. I mean, there's a little artistic license taken here and there, but the idea was, audio-wise, just try and get us back in that bubble, because that was the thing, you know, with all the different versions of the film, whenever we were with them in their moment and feeling in there, you know, intimately with them, those are always the strongest pieces. So we always were striving to be in there. And, of course, being in the studio, as if you've got a pair of headphones on and you're just listening to them talk over the mics and through the uh, tannoy, it was, you know, it's just really enticing. And it's, I found in just listening to it all, I could listen to it for hours and get lost in it. Um, and it's very compelling. So once we built a few sequences and were able to get our, the feeling of before a take and messing a take up and then doing it again and talking and laughing, and then I started going through the, the photographs. You know, again, not all the photographs are from exactly the same session. They're over a couple of days of that recording, but there's one or two or sometimes, luckily enough, four of a sequence or close enough to the same sequence where you can, we were able to really bring those moments to life. And uh, the people here did our um, graphics, the, the girl called Inka Kenzia of uh, Meme, or Mem, or however you pronounce it, M-E-M-E, uh, a brilliant graphics company. They did some 3D and they added smoke to sort of cigarettes and just <laughs> a little bit of atmosphere, just yeah. to make it feel a little less like photographs. I didn't, and we didn't want to go full 3D, you know, kid stage in the picture, because that has been so done. So it was very, very subtle the movement. But um, 
you know, little things like keeping the microphone, as the photograph changes, if you keep the phone in the same position, exactly the same position, so it never changes and everything around it moves slightly, it's still, you just get the sense that you're on a continuous image and less of a, movie, uh, less of a, a series of stills. So little things like that where we would, you know, make a little bit of a de detail like that just to try and bring the songs to life. If they, they're pursing their lips, so it looks like they're going ooh, and the song, the audio goes ooh. If you hit the, you know, hit the photograph at the right time, it feels like you're watching them sing the words ooh. And, you know, all that was, it was just fun finding the photograph, hearing the noise and putting the two together and, and getting the, uh, the moment just coming to life. We're in the moment business, right? That's kind of what we do is make moments. Mm -hmm. The uh, section with uh, Don't Let Me Down at the end looks look so good. What, if anything, did you do to that? Well, um, we were able the Don't Let Me, the Don't Bring Me Down, um, Don't Let Me Down uh, performance was on the Ones video had, had been released. And we also got access to the rushes of um, I Got a Feeling. And so we decided as the uh, Don't Let Me Down had been on the ones, that we wouldn't do the complete performance of that and that we do a little bit of this other thing which hadn't been seen since Let It Be um, and give the audience a bit more of a... We tried doing three songs, but it, just, it was a bit too medley-like, and so we just cut the two songs together and felt that was the strong... give us the strong performance. So that is unique version of, um, of uh, Don't Let Me... D of I Got a Feeling that no one's seen for... and a unique cut... Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, all the edits are slightly different to the other versions too. Right, right. And that was a that was a very smooth edit going from <laughs> "Don't Let Me Down" into "I've Got a Feeling" audio-wise mm. and video-wise. That was so yes, well done. That, that, well, that uh, well, thank you. But uh, actually, I have to uh, give the nod to the man who suggested the edit go there, which was Paul McCartney himself. Really? Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, we we were talking about. Uh, the transition of the song and he, you know, it was, <laughs> I was having a conversation with Paul about the film and the ending and, and having these two songs and how best to get it. And he's just, you know, in Paul's fashion, he sang it to us down the phone, you know, he, and he didn't sort of like just give you a, a light thing. He sang the entire section before of, the, of Don't Let Me Down and then the next section, the beginning section of I Got A Feeling and just, you know, full Paul on screaming down the voice, you know, a cappella. It's fantastic. So you have a you have a recording of that? No. Yep. <laughs> we were just on the you know, everyone's on the phone you know, at the end he says, you know, how about something like that? And everyone's just stunned. Yeah. That sounds good. We'll do that. Let's try so you just you know it's, it's how, how, and, and, uh, how close how close did they work with you? I mean did was there a lot of instances like that where Paul or Ringo we got together with you guys and and did this you know did those kind of suggestions um no we had we were lucky enough to interview both of them uh on two occasions and the first occasion we had the interviews that we got and generally because our story was you know what the questions of our story were were coming across as very similar to the obvious questions unfortunately because it's the story they've told and you know as human beings when we remember things we generally sort of file our memories down and sort of round them off and they become the new the last way we told that story becomes the real way that it happened mm -hmm. and you just sort of like develop it over time you, you know details change and etc but you generally tell the same story and that's very apparent in interviews with Paul and Ringo in the past that they're, they're very similar and our first interviews were somewhat similar 
But what happened in the, between the first and second interview was they saw an early cut of the film, or you know, a, a good, where the film was in good shape. And they then came to the interview, and they were refreshed. Their minds were refreshed. Their memories were new. And we got completely different interviews out of them, and we got intimate stuff. And we got those moments from Paul where he talks about Ringo playing with him the, the first time, and he starts to get emotional. Yeah, we've got good. Uh, a lot of moments in that instance, you know, talking about John the first time. You know, I used to write songs and tell people this, and everyone's like, you know, I'm not interested. And his relationship with John, he he got a little bit more emotional with. And so it was, you know, that was fantastic. So we had that kind of collaboration in that respect. And I know that Ron and Paul uh, spoke from time to time just about ideas. You know, you're thinking about things and you, you throw an idea somewhat, some way. So that's, you know, that's we get excited about something. Uh, so I know there was a little back and forth. As, mm. And the, as I told you, you know, the ending, uh, working with the songs at the end. Between wow. the actual film and the extras on the DVD and Blu-ray, do we get just about everything from the Paul and Ringo interviews, or is there still a lot that, that will remain I'll, unreleased? I'll, I'll be honest. I'm not sure what we included out of Paul and Ringo's interviews on the extras, how much of the you know, uncut, unseen stuff is on there. Um, I couldn't honestly answer that. I'm a little unfamiliar. We were finishing both the uh, online uh, for the film at the same time as the DVD extras were being finished up as well for delivery uh, element. And I was, I was focusing on the film, and it was all about getting the film finished. And uh, Nigel was, went on to the DVDs and, and finished that. So I, I know we had a lot of ideas of what we wanted to put on the DVD extras, what actually ended up being finalized. I, I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm not familiar with Okay. On the, the two large sections, the, the larger sections in the uh, in the extras, uh, at least the the credits say that the that the, the interviews with Paul and Ringo are uh, unissued. Okay. So yeah, so those must be, I guess, definitely you know from the 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 extra footage. Yeah, but, um, and they I mean they are great interviews, you know, they're, and they're in great spirits, and it was really uh, you know. It was really good, really, both interviews were really a lot of uh, very happy occasions, you know. We were, they were happy. It, you know, you, my fear was like, here we go again. You know, they're going to be like, oh, we've got to do this again. You know, and, yeah. and as you can imagine, our 50 years telling the same stories. But they weren't. It wasn't like that at all. They were excited about the project. They were excited about the idea of everything. And they came to, to it with a nice exuberance. Hmm. You talked about how much fun you had with the um, the studio outtakes and the chatter and and stuff and 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 some of that was some of the most interesting thing, especially the bits of outtakes that haven't been bootlegged and haven't been in anthology and we haven't heard before. So, are you considering volume two, the studio years? <laughs> <laughs> that was always uh, so funny. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we I did, the, I remember doing the very first, you know, cut. Could, when I grew up, you know, the albums 62 to 66 and 67 to 70 were, you know, really, really kind of like how you got your Beatles fix. You know, hmm. those were the two places that you went to. So uh, I figured we, could, should, we should call this film, you know, the Red Album or the Red Film, which was <laughs> 62 to 66. And then, we, mm -hmm. and then, you know, and that was always, and then we could make the Blue Film. Uh, yeah, but they, they've uh, already put this one in a blue cover, so you, you have to... <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're going to have to go red on the other one. So, you know, but uh, we... I, and, I, and I did joke about, at the end of it, you know, when I first built the very first, put the final scene and finished the first uh, full cut, 
of point end of part one at the end because it kind of is really. Um, uh-huh. But whether there, whether a part two happens, ah, uh, you know, if I'll do it. If they want, uh, are you kidding? I'd love to do it, but <laughs> whether it happens, I've, I've no idea. That's, that's unfortunately not my decision. Mm. But I would love to do a part two, of course. And and uh, you know, but it's a very different. It'd be a very different film, of course. And there's there's, less a, there's footage in those days. Of course. Right. There's true. There's been story, there's been quotes and I and I hate quotes like that, but there have been quotes from Ron Howard saying he'd love to do a second film also. But there is no active discussion about a second film. Is that correct, Paul? No, exactly no, that's correct. Well, I mean, we all of us many times in that room, you know, we were like, Oh, wouldn't it be great to do part two when we get especially when we were in the end section of the film, we get into the you know, you're working on the media that you have uh, surrounding uh, Sergeant Pepper. And all mm-hmm. that stuff, you feel like, oh, wouldn't it be great to just get into this bit now and and you know talk about? I mean, just the the little moment before they released it, whatever you know, there was lots of rumours about, oh, they're over, they can't do anything, they're spending so long in the studio because they you know, they're lost, they don't know what they're doing. And there's a great pause in our interview. He's, you know, he was reading these things and he was just saying, yeah, you wait, you wait. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> you know, they were very excited. They knew what they were doing and they were like couldn't wait to unleash it. But um, you know, so it would be fascinating. We, we all, you know, constantly discussed. Wouldn't it be great if we could? But we have to get asked first. Yeah, yeah. Any anybody Paul, else have any? Go ahead, yeah, Ken. I was just, just going to say, um, Paul, congratulations on the film being extended for another week in the theaters, which is mm. extraordinary for a documentary yeah. film. So. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's not often that that happens. Um, you know, a lot of the times, when, especially documentaries, they come out and it, it almost feels like they're really, shh, don't tell anyone. That film just came out. You know, mm-hmm. so, so for this to have such great, um, not only to be in the cinema, but to be extended, to have that kind of response. I mean, it's been available on Hulu now since the uh, 17th, you know, two days after it's released, and it's still having a really strong cinema- cinematic run. They added 100 theatres. Right, and that's actually a major point because, I mean, people who have Hulu can see it for free where right. people are still going to the theaters to see it. I mean, that that's something that really I, I don't think is being emphasized enough. That, but that, you also so, get to see Shay in, in the theater. Right. Well, yes, that's that is one of the, but that's a bit of a surprise for most audience members. They don't know that's coming until they get... Um, so I don't know if that's enticing them. Probably a, a bunch of word of mouth, I'm sure, is enticing some of them. But it is interesting that they they want to see it on, in a cinematic sense, which means, which is just uh, is lovely as as a, an older person in the industry that the cinema isn't completely dead yet, that it's not all about you know VOD, mm-hmm. even though mm-hmm. you know it's obviously going that way. People that don't want to see it on their phone, they do want to see it in the theatre. That's right. uh, that's good to, because it is a theatrical film. We do, obviously you always design it in, with that in mind, big screen as opposed to little screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's been great, wow. and thank you for that. It's been it's been uh, it's been an incredible ride. Yeah, thank, thank you, Paul, you for for being with us here for this. Yeah, interview. thank you. It's yeah. been wonderful. Thank you, thank you. This has been a great this has been a great discussion. We've learned a lot, and and I think the audience will appreciate it. Thank yeah. you very oh, much. Just just one other thing. Let's see if maybe I hallucinated this. Did I read correctly? Do you are that your is it your father or brother is Alan? Crowder. My father. My Paul. father was Alan Crowder. My father yeah. worked for, for Paul a couple of decades ago. He did. Oh, he, wow. he worked with Paul for Paul for 28 years. Wow. I met Paul when I was nine years old the first time, and I got to jam with him when I was 14. 
up at the uh, farm in in Scotland, um, and you know saw him quite regularly. He was, he was a good good friend. I, I you know would venture to say he's a little bit like family. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, honestly, I've known him that long, and he's been a good good friend to us. I didn't see much of him for a long time when I moved to America. I saw a lot less of him uh, than I had for previously. Um, and inadvertently, our paths crossed with last play at Shea and again with Sound City. And I worked with, uh, was working with Dave Grohl, and he had Paul come down to the studio. And I asked Dave, do you mind if I come to the studio while you shoot this? Because uh, I'd love to see Paul. I haven't seen him for a long time. And we had a great catch-up in the studio, and, and uh, he you know, had no idea that I was a filmmaker now. And then I said, you know, last play at Shea, that's me. I saw, I saw Paul Crow. I thought, no, it can't be. But yeah, you know, so <laughs> it, it was, it was, uh, it was really nice. So then, when our names were brought forward, you know, they they approved our names um, on merit, on you know, for our reputation as filmmakers, not because of, uh, through any nepotism in any way. Um, so that was really nice to be accepted as a filmmaker, and just that happened to be friends too, which is great. Oh, congratulations! Well, you were a drummer, right? Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I was drummer. I, I had a I had a, a career of uh, 20 years playing drums. Mm-hmm. And then I had to get a proper job. <laughs> so when you were nine and jammed with done. wings, did you displace Denny Sywell or one of the others? No, actually, you know, Steve Holly was the drummer at the time, and they were ah. all lived in the same area. Um, okay. And Steve knew I was a drummer. And we were up actually just having a – I saw my dad was working a lot, and you know, sometimes to uh, have a vacation with dad, you had to go where he was as opposed to – or um, leave and go somewhere. So we went up to the farm and spent uh, a week up in the Mullican Tower, which is one of my favourite holidays ever. And anyway, they were, we were watching Wings Over America, the film about Wings Over America, and they were watching a cut of that. And I watched about an hour of that, and then I decided to go for a walk, you know, going to the studio because there was all the drums were set up. There was five different drum kits. So I asked him, I said, Steve, can I play your drums? So he let me say, yeah, sure, off you go. So I went and did that, and I was just hanging around the studio. Then they all walked in, Paul and everybody, and I was like, oh, gosh, and put the sticks down to walk out. Paul said, no, no, stay, stay. And they just started playing, and it was, uh, I just played, uh, jammed three songs with, it was Denny Lane played keyboards, Paul's playing bass, and Lawrence Juba was playing guitar, and I'm playing drums, and I've got a cassette of it still. Can you send us so. a copy? No. <laughs> <laughs> do, you remember what, do you remember what three songs? Sorry. Yeah, yeah. They, no, they were the jams. Literally, they were jams. It was just a, a sort of a 12-bar boogie sort of first thing. It was no vocal, just all instrumentals. And then there was a come together esque bassline um, mm. that uh, that he was doing. And I remember him leaning over. I can visualize it to this day of uh, him uh, leaning in and just yelling at me, "Use your tom toms." Like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> The things we remember. It was just oh, a yeah. great moment, of course. So now you know what Ringo went through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, it was exciting and it was just, it was fun. It was, you know, great, a lot to learn. It was good, though. And, uh, you know, he's never forgotten that. That's why he comes up quite often. Mm, great. Nice. Yeah. But yeah, so it was fun, you know, Dad working with him and having all, you know, having a little history yeah. and then being able to make a couple of films, then being the finale of the films and now being asked to make this film and to have had a success with it, you know, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's great. Mm. It's just in my dad, yeah. my unfortunately my dad's passed, but he would have been really proud and would have yeah. loved it. So would my mum. Cool. And, you know, but uh, it's 
still good. Well, that's, that's great an amazing idea. journey you've had so far. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's a great story. Great story. Great story. Yeah, a bit, you know, a bit of luck, but uh, you know, just the, you know, it was just the life's journey. Things that have just fallen in my lap. It's really funny. Yep. It's great. Yep. Well, thank you, thank you again, Paul. Yeah. This is well, this has been fantastic. You've been this has been one of the best shows I can remember. I mean, this this is fantastic. This is great. Well, you, guys thanks, been, guys. you guys gave us a lot of information, and uh, like I said, I think the uh, the listeners will enjoy it. Thank you again. Oh, my yeah, pleasure. You, thank you very much for for being interested and for uh, talking. And uh, anytime, I look forward to hearing the show. Uh, great interview in Pro Video Coalition too, by the way. That was yeah, you know, that was great. Steve's a and... wonderful guy. Yeah, yeah, that okay. was a, a fun interview as well. He's a nice guy. Right. All right, guys. All right, All right Paul. All right, thank you. Paul. Thank you very much. Yeah, Take thank care. you again, Paul. Thanks again. Bye-bye okay. for now. Bye. 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 Bye-bye. Okay, that, there you go. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We were all really, really pleased, really chuffed, as Paul McCartney would say, after it was over. Uh, we were really pleased at how this came about. We hope you enjoyed it. Let me go through. Uh, you can get a hold of you can get a hold of the show at Things We Said Today Radio Show at Gmail dot com. We're streamed on Podbean, on YouTube, and on iTunes. And so you can find our shows all over the place. And uh, you can get a hold of me at BeatlesExaminer at gmail.com or my Facebook page or my Beatles news group, Beatles News and Commentary. Uh, join in and discuss the news of the day or whatever suits your fancy. Let me go next to uh, uh, Ken. Ken, where, where can people get a hold of you? Well, they can email me at everylittlething at att.net. And they could also visit my website, which is KenMichaelsRadio.com. I just want to say that my website is getting busier and busier every single week because in addition to having weekly Beatles trivia, where you can win one of nine prizes every single week on my Beatles trivia and games page, I have a special contest which I have called the Number 9 Dream Contest. And what that means is, on my uh, Beatles trivia and games page, you have a choice of one of nine prizes to win. The number nine dream contest, you win choice number nine, which is actually four prizes rolled into one. So uh, there's a special contest. There's the Beatles trivia and games every single week. And I also have tickets where you can win Denny Lane in concert. And he's playing at uh, Daryl's house, which is the place that's owned by Daryl Hall in Pauling, New York. So for any of you New Englanders, uh, if you want to see Denny Lane in concert, you can win tickets on my website, KenMichaelsRadio.com. Okay, thank you, Ken. Uh, Alan? Um, okay, you can get in touch with me on Facebook is probably the easiest way, either at Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remixed. And um, that's basically it for me. And uh, Mr. Distinguished, uh, Al Sussman? <laughs> uh, pretty much the same as Alan. Uh, on Facebook at Al Sussman, not Albert. And on Twitter at ASU at ASUSS forty nine. Okay. I used to call him Uncle Albert on my show many years ago. Oh oh yeah. Did, oh, did you really? Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um thanks to everyone for listening. We will be back unless we have a uh, a really important uh interview that supersedes it. 
our next show will be our our 200th show, show special, even though we this is we've already done 200 shows. We will go back and remember some of our best shows, um, the shows that we really picked as the best shows. And if you want to send us in a note and tell us which shows uh, uh, you really liked, uh, please do. Anyway, until uh, our next show, this is Steve Marinucci for Alan Cozen, Al Sussman, and Ken Michaels saying thanks for listening to Things We Said Today, and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.